This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Christ in the Old Testament. Our scripture reading today is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 15 and 16. In the course of time, King David's son Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, "What town are you from?" he would answer, "Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel." Then Absalom would say to him, "Look, your claims are valid and prosper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you." And Absalom would add, "If only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me, and I would see that they receive justice." Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. and so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel at the end of 4 years absalom said to the king let me go to hebron and fulfill a vow i made to the lord while your servant was living at geshur in aram i made this vow if the lord takes me back to jerusalem i will worship the lord in hebron the king said to him go in peace so he went to hebron then absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of israel to say As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets then say Absalom is king in Hebron 200 men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom they had been invited as guests and went quite innocently knowing nothing about the matter while Absalom was offering sacrifices he also sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite David's counselor to come from Gilo his hometown and so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing A messenger came and told David the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem come we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom we must leave immediately or he will come quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword the king's officials answered him your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses the king set out with his entire household following him but he left 10 concubines to take care of the palace so the king set out with all his people following him and they halted at the edge of the city all his men marched past him along with all the carathites and pelathites and all the 600 gitites who had accompanied him from gath marched before the king the whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by the king also crossed the kidron valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness David continued up the mount of olives weeping as he went his head was covered and he was barefoot all the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up as king david approached bahurim a man from the same clan as saul's family came out from there his name was shimei son of gera and he cursed as he came out he pelted david and all the king's officials with stones though all the troops and the special guard were on david's right and left As he cursed Shimei said get out get out you murderer you scoundrel the lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul in whose place you have reigned 
the Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. This is the word of the Lord. We have gathered before your word, O God. We want to hear with understanding, so give us attentive ears. By the power of your Holy Spirit at work in the word read and proclaimed, Make the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, good afternoon. If you're new here, I wish you a very warm welcome. I'm Pastor Bart Bile, and my privilege today is to open up the Word of God to you as we continue in a series on Christ in the Old Testament. And we're going through this not because we have some obscure antiquarian history obsession with things that happened thousands of years ago, not even because we love the Bible and the Old Testament, much as we do love those things, but because we love Jesus and we want to see Christ in these pages as he himself taught us to do. And here we are this afternoon, 9, 10, 11 books into this series. We're in the book of 2 Samuel which is actually not really a book on its own. First and second Samuel formed a single book that were only split into two halves simply because of the physical limitations of the scroll. And first and second Samuel have one overarching theme, which is this. What kind of king will Israel have? What does real leadership look like? Especially when you understand that the king is not merely a human political leader, He is the earthly representative of God's reign on earth. And whether that's a king who upholds that reign and points to God or someone who points away from God is the difference between good leaders and evil leaders. Last week, as we reflected on 1 Samuel, we saw how God chose the shepherd boy David over Saul, the failed leader who was relying on human strength. And now in 2 Samuel, in these 24 chapters or so, we see David rising to the throne after years in the wilderness. And 1 Samuel, if you just had read that book, you would have such an optimistic view of David at last coming to the throne, this man after God's own heart who'd waited patiently for God to bring about the coronation I'm sorry to tell you that 2 Samuel paints a very ambivalent picture of David. It's not a story of the golden age, of a perfect godly king. It's really the story of David's sin and the evil that David's choices unleash in Israel for generations. 
1 Samuel had ended with the catastrophic defeat of Israel at the hands of the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. And Jonathan, the crown prince and David's loyal friend, had died in battle. And Saul, the disturbed, the tragic, dark, disturbed king who had been obsessed with hunting down and killing David, he had taken his own life on the battlefield to escape capture. But David's reaction to the defeat of his enemy, this person who had been hunting him down, is surprising. He doesn't rejoice. He doesn't gloat. He composes a lament for the dead, this beautiful elegy for Saul and Jonathan, those heroic warriors, swifter than eagles, stronger than lions, who have now fallen in battle. Because for all of Saul's faults, and no one knows the the faults and vices of Saul better than David does, he's not without virtues either. Everyone is complicated. And Saul's defeat in battle is mourned by every true Israelite. And David's song of lament marks this transition in the narrative, because up to this point, it had been the arc of Saul and David, their intertwined fates. And now Saul is gone, and now it's just David's story alone. David's rival has been removed, not, and David's at great pains to make this clear to Israel, not by David's hands. David had had his opportunities to kill Saul, but he had refrained from harming the Lord's anointed. Saul has been defeated at the hands of the Philistines and behind them, the hand of God himself. Saul's gone, but David's path to the throne is going to have many twists and turns still, because although the people of Judah, David's own tribe, are quick to crown him the king at Hebron, the rest of the 12 tribes still want to follow the house of Saul. And they put Ishbosheth, Saul's son, on the throne in the north. And it's the first sign of this fracture between Judah and Israel in the history of the 12 tribes, and it's going to spark years of civil war. Saul's son, Ishbosheth, is a weak leader. And the power behind the throne, the one who's controlling the puppet strings, is his capable general, Abner. And he eventually decides, you know what, this guy's too weak. I'm going to come over to David's side because David is the one who's winning. But there's someone who has it in for the general Abner, and that's David's nephew, Joab, the commander of his army. And he stabs Abner to death at the city gate after David meets with him, partially in revenge for the death of his brother in battle, and partially to remove a rival to Joab's own power. And David's reaction is to declare his innocence. I knew nothing about this murder. And he speaks a curse over Joab and his descendants. But you get the feeling that both David and Joab know the king needs someone to do his dirty work. There's plausible deniability, as every political leader has, but Joab is willing to do the stuff that David does not want to get his hands dirty with. And as David rises to the throne, as he takes power, you start to see a darker side to him. Things that you didn't see when David was just a shepherd boy defending the flock from the wolves and the bears. Things you didn't see while David was hiding in the caves in the wilderness. But as David comes to power, we start to see some other aspects to his character. But it's only hints at this time. And in these early years, you see David succeeding. He's being blessed by God. And finally, after seven and a half years, a united Israel crowns David king And they give him the crown that he's going to wear for a long 40 years. 
And David's first act as king is to conquer the city of Jerusalem, to take over the stronghold of Zion, and make it his political capital. But David wants to make the city his religious capital too. And as he's sitting in his palace, he thinks to himself, is it really fair that I'm sitting here in this house of cedar that God has given to me, and right next door, God is living in a tent? And he's brought the Ark of God, the sacred chest, to Jerusalem. And as it enters Jerusalem, David had been dancing before the Lord and celebrating because he wanted so badly the presence of God to be with him and with his people. And David's about to to build this temple, and it's a noble thought. It's a good desire. But then God speaks to David through the prophet Nathan. And God says, David, do you really think that I need a house? Do you really think that the God of heaven and earth needs a house to live in? David, you are not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty that is going to go on forever, a great dynasty. It's like God is not going to be any man's debtor. No matter how glorious the things we dream up for the glory of God, God's like, no, you're not going to do that for me. I'm going to do something for you. The giving always goes in one direction. And God has sworn that in the end, we are the ones who will receive the blessing. And so God in 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament, swears this series of great promises to David, known collectively as the Davidic covenant. He's going to give David a great name. He's going to plant Israel securely in the land, and he's going to secure David's dynasty after him on the throne. And God says to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. This mysterious son of David. And this prophecy is somewhat fulfilled in the great King Solomon who comes after David, but the later Old Testament prophecies make it clear Solomon was not the answer, the complete answer to God's promises. God's going to raise up an even greater son of David, someone from the root of Jesse, the truly anointed one, the Messiah who's going to deliver Israel forever from her enemies. And bring about a reign of peace and prosperity and justice that will never end. Someone who's going to manifest the holy and life-giving presence of God in her midst. When God's ancient promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is fulfilled, and all the nations come streaming up to Mount Zion. And the echoes of 2 Samuel 7 reverberate through the rest of the Old Testament into the New. David hadn't earned this promise of God. He hadn't looked for it. He hadn't sought it. He hadn't expected it. And really, who else in human history had ever received such a great promise from God? And all David can do is sit before the Lord and say in stunned worship, Who am I, Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Why are you pouring your goodness Upon me in this way. And if only David had maintained that spirit of overwhelmed thanksgiving for God's grace in his life. 
his reign would have been a triumph. If only David had kept his heart in that place of thanksgiving. But David grows complacent. And at the time of the year when kings go forth to war, chapter 11 tells us, David is sitting in Jerusalem while Joab and the army are off fighting the Ammonites. And while David is walking on his roof in the cool of the evening, he looks down and he sees a beautiful woman bathing on her rooftop. And David inquires, who is this woman? And he's told, this is Bathsheba. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah is listed later as one of David's 30 mighty men. He's one of David's loyal elites who at this very moment is serving the king, fighting the king's battles for him at the siege of Rabbah, the Ammonite city. That should have given David pause, but he wants this woman. And he sends for her. He is the king, after all. And they sleep together, and then she goes back home. And that's the end of the story as far as David is concerned. He's got what he wanted. But then she sends him a message. I'm pregnant. And now David's really sweating. Because now he's got to cover up his adultery. And if it's discovered, it's going to cause him to lose face, not just among the people of Israel, but the political consequences of him having slept with the wife of one of his most loyal right-hand men. That can't even be contemplated. David can't face up to that. And so his solution is to ask Joab to make sure that Uriah gets killed in a skirmish under the walls of Rabbah. And Joab is always willing to do the dirty work. But he realizes if just Uriah dies, it's going to be too obvious, too suspicious. And so Joab makes sure that some other warriors die in this skirmish designed to fail. You can see that the circle of the evil consequences of David's sin start to grow even wider and start to hurt more and more innocent people. Well, God's not going to let David get away with adultery and murder. And he sends the prophet Nathan to confront David with an artfully constructed parable. You are the man, Nathan accuses David. And God's judgment on David is that the sword is never going to depart from his house. There's always going to be violence in David's family. And the king is cut to the heart and he confesses, I have offended against the Lord. And he's genuinely remorseful. If you go to this book of Psalms and read Psalm 51, you'll see how brokenhearted David is over his sin. And this, by the way, is what sets David apart from Saul. It's not that David was free from sin, even horrifying sin. The difference is that when David does sin, he repents, he seeks God's forgiveness and God's cleansing. And the prophet says to David, God has forgiven you. You will not die. Nevertheless, because you've shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord, your child will die. You know, David may be personally forgiven for his sins, but his crimes have consequences that can't easily be undone. Consequences that are going to devastate everyone around him. Too late to put the toothpaste back in the tube. The evil that David has unleashed is going to run its course. And the whole second half of the book surveys just the nuclear fallout of David's sin on his life, his family, and his kingdom. The baby born to Bathsheba dies, and David is heartbroken, but even worse is to come. 
David's son, Absalom, has a beautiful sister named Tamar. And her half-brother, Amnon, and David has a very messy family. He's got a large harem of wives and concubines, which always, always in the, in the Bible produces misery. So her half-brother, Amnon, becomes infatuated with Tamar, and he ends up getting her alone in his room. He overpowers her, he rapes her, and then he throws her out in disgust. And the book records that when David hears about this, when the news comes to his ears, he is extremely incensed. He's furious, but he does nothing. And as we'll see, David is a very poor, a very neglectful father. Well, Tamar's brother Absalom is not going to be so passive. He bides his time for two years, and then he lures Amnon to a party and orders his henchmen to kill him. And you can see how the father's illicit sexuality and murder and intrigue start to be replicated in his family. And Absalom flees across the border to escape retribution. But after three years, and with some help from Joab, he returns and he's reconciled to his father, David, with a kiss. And that brings us to the passage that Kenneth read for us a few minutes ago. Because as soon as Absalom is back, he starts scheming for the throne. He wants to push his father off so he can be the king. And Absalom is charming, he's attractive, and he has an absolutely luscious head of hair. It's just beautiful. And he's cunning enough, Absalom is, to to go among his people, not like his passive and absent father who always seems to be shut up in the palace. He goes in the city gates and he starts meeting people who are coming for justice. And he promises, ah, if only I were the king, if only I were in charge, there would be true justice in the land. He says, I would declare in favor of everyone who came to me for judgment, which is an absolutely ludicrous thing to promise. I will declare in favor of everyone who comes to me for judgment. If you think about it for 10 seconds, which no one thinks to do. And Fabio here begins to steal away the hearts of the people of Israel. And the conspiracy spreads with such speed that by the time the palace realizes what's going on, it's too late to do anything but flee for their lives. David is finally shaken out of his passivity, and he and a small party of loyal retainers, and there are a handful of people who stick with the king, however grim things look, they escape for Jerusalem, and they make a run for the border. It's an emotional journey. It's almost like a funeral procession. The whole countryside is weeping aloud as the people pass by. The king himself is weeping. His head is covered. He's taken off his sandals to walk barefoot over the Mount of Olives. It's a public act of repentance for his past sins. David's not blaming his son's treachery. He's not cursing the disloyalty of his people because David can only blame himself. He knows these are the bitter fruits of my own sin years before. So when this worthless fellow Shimei begins spitting curses and pelting David and his men with stones... The king refuses to let Abishai go and cut off the head of this dead dog. Now, these are cowardly words, Shimei's words, from a cowardly man, someone who never would have dared to have said this to the king's face when he was on the throne, but is glad to abuse him at his lowest point. And their words of lies and slander, Shimei is from the house of Saul. He's loudly accusing David of burying the blood of Saul and his family. 
And they're stinging words because they're the very opposite of the way David had treated Saul. He'd refrained multiple times from harming Saul. He's even taken Saul's crippled grandson, Mephibosheth, into his own home and fed him at his own table. Lies and slander, but also there is some truth, some bitter truth in Shimei's words. Because Shimei is screaming that the Lord is bringing on David's head all his evil. Because David is a murderer. He's a man of blood. And David's conscience is reminding him, I'm not such an innocent man. So he tells Abishai, leave him alone, let him curse, or the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. You know, David is totally resigned to the will of God. He's fully accepted that he is a sinner with no excuses, no defense before God, and that God is just. And David's best hope is to bow his head, to submit, to receive the discipline of God, hoping that beyond discipline, beyond humiliation, beyond shame, there might be gracious restoration. But if David opens his heart to God in true repentance, that God will show mercy and bring David back to a place of blessing, which indeed will happen if you read on in 2 Samuel. And you'll find the rebels will be defeated, Absalom will be killed, and David will regain his throne, and he'll die at a ripe old age, celebrating the faithfulness of the Lord. You know, there are many much brighter spots in David's life that we could meditate on. But it seems to me that this haunting story of the weeping, humiliated king leaving Jerusalem is a powerful picture of Christ himself. And that's a parallel the Gospels themselves suggest as they describe Jesus after the Last Supper, crossing the Kidron Valley, going into the Garden of Gethsemane at the foot of the Mount of Olives. Jesus, too, will be betrayed by a kiss by someone he trusted And only a few loyal and weeping followers will go with him outside the city to his fate as Jesus is mocked, jeered, struck, and spat upon by his own people who have rejected him. But there's this difference. For David, the king's solidarity with Israel means that the people are suffering for the sins of the king. All the dead bodies and all the grieving widows and orphans and all the destroyed cities of the civil war are ultimately David's fault. But for the son of David, for Jesus, the king's solidarity with Israel means not that the people suffer for the sins of the king. The king suffers for the sins of the people. Because Jesus' journey is also a pathway of repentance, not for his own sins, not for his own iniquity, but for the evil of his own people. David couldn't atone for Israel. He couldn't cover their sins. He couldn't even atone for his own faults. All David can pray is, Lord, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Jesus is the one who came to do that washing, to wash his people in his own blood, to stand and suffer in our place, to silently bear on his own head all the curses meant for us. He bore our grief. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Yet like a sheep led to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. And it's in the humiliation and the crucifixion of the Son of God for all its evil and horror that we perceive the true kingliness of Christ Jesus. Because we're all sinners, like David. We all have to pray Psalm 51 
for ourselves because our own selfish choices, our own sins with God have created their own ripple of devastation in our lives, our families, in all of God's creation. And we're also people with blood on our hands who've contributed to the death in the world. And you know, David's story suggests that yes, while we desperately need forgiveness, the evil that our sin unleashes in the world can't just be waved away, even by God. The mystery of iniquity can't be destroyed that easily. God himself must kneel down and suck the poison out of the world's wound. And at Gethsemane and at Golgotha, we witness the death of no merely human victim. It's the suffering of the impassable God. Now, Jesus died not just to forgive sin, although that's true, but to undo death itself, to make his blessing known as far as the curse is found, to destroy the forces of evil and to bring the new Jerusalem down to earth so that we could all live together in the temple of God. You know what? Just as David, when he returned to the throne, as he will, lavishly rewarded those few who remained loyal to him, Jesus is going to do the same and honor all of us who've wept at the cross, who've suffered with Jesus in the wilderness, and who've confessed his name before men. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Shall we do that? Heavenly Father, we stand before you with blood on our hands, with iniquity on our hearts, and we need to be washed, we need to be cleansed, we need to be forgiven, and we need somehow the effects of the sin that we've unleashed on the world to be undone. And it's too much for us, O Lord. All we can do is look to the Son you have sent, the Son of David, the world's Messiah, and see him enduring shame, spitting, humiliation, crucifixion, and death for our sakes. And who are we, O Lord, to be loved in this way? Who are we for you to have given your only son for our sakes? Lord, help us too to weep at the foot of the cross and also to rejoice at the coming kingdom of Jesus. And Lord, so fill us with your spirit, so strengthen our own hearts that we might be counted among those who receive the words, well done, good and faithful servant, when he at last is publicly crowned as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In his mighty name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.